it, it's embodied by a conversation I had with a utility executive that captures the absolute truth of the statement. He said, listen, Bill, I, I appreciate that people want to put solar on the roof. I get it. They want to make an environmental impact, but he says, I'm a dollar and cents guy. I've seen the math. You've seen the math. It is just much cheaper to build it in a large field at scale than it is to put in a roof. And that's, that's just the bottom line. And I let it hang there for a second. And I said, it's cheaper for you. And, <laughs> and, and no one ever thought about that before. Welcome to the World Changing Podcast. Was that too much? Yeah, that was probably too much. But let's keep it. We'll keep it anyway. How about this? If we do the podcast and the world doesn't change, then we can take that out. Welcome to the World Changing Podcast, where we deconstruct the projects and products that are moving us towards a decentralized and carbon-free future. We'll talk to the skeptics, supporters, and innovators in the fields that depend on electricity to run their industries, which is changing every single day. I'm your host, Greg Robinson, co-founder of Aston Labs, a decentralized infrastructure company. And on the other side of the camera here, we have Flo Lumsden, our producer, and she will make sure that the train stays on the tracks while we do this. Our next guest on the World Changing Podcast is Bill Nussie. So I've been so excited to have this conversation with Bill. I first met Bill when he was kind of making a transition from his life as a kind of tech entrepreneur, CEO, venture capitalist, and moving over into the following his passion of, of renewable energy. He was writing a book. It's called Freeing Energy. It's still to this day my most recommended book to anybody who wants to learn about the energy sector. And it's really Bill's experience and background that makes me recommend that book. I think he has such a unique experience uh, in the tech sector and what that means when you apply technology, business models, and innovation to a sector like energy that really hasn't changed much in a hundred years. So Bill's first company was a graphic software company when personal computers were still text-based. He started that in high school. His second company started in college. That company served millions of users in 45 countries. He spent several years as a venture capitalist until he took another job as a CEO where he grew that company to $500 million in revenue and took it public. But he wasn't done. He joined another startup as CEO, grew that company to nearly $100 million in revenue and sold to IBM where he was an advisor to the C-suite on strategy. And after that full career of creating thousands of jobs and billions of dollars in value, he made the transition to his passion for renewable energy, which began with a TED talk. And then what became the number one ranked renewable energy podcast called the Freeing Energy Podcast. And then ultimately his book that he published at the end of 2021 called Freeing Energy, how innovators are using local scale solar and batteries to disrupt the global energy industry from the outside. Bill is now a Department of Energy Clean Energy Champion. He's co-founded a company called Solar Inventions, whose mission is to commercialize a set of scientific breakthroughs for improving silicon photovoltaics. Bill is a venture capitalist again. And one thing that I just find so fascinating is it's really easy to sit at the top of these of this industry and not get down in the weeds. But Bill and his family have taken on a handful of projects providing off-grid resilient electricity in places like East Africa and Puerto Rico. In this episode, we cover everything from power plant inspections to 
monopolies to the future of microgrids. And we even get to hear Bill's personal story of what has fueled his entrepreneurial career from high school to this very day. We hope you enjoy the conversation as much as we did. How's that? Yeah, yeah. All right. I'm glad we're merging all of this <laughs> into a recorded podcast. It's been a while since we got up. Well, it's good to see you, man. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I I try to do one of these. Uh, I try to do a podcast every once in a while just to keep the story evolving. And uh, happy to happy to do one with you. And my podcast. Uh, which did quite well when it was in, um, but my job at Engage has caused me to be crazy busy. So the podcast has gotten <laughs> deprioritized, but I always use uh, Riverside, love it. Great platform. So you know not to close the uh, browser at the end of the- I do, I've had to call people up and say, use this URL, yep. All right, well, I know we have a tight schedule a bit today. We can't sort of spend the whole day together, so I'll- try to achieve the impossible for me, which is be brief. <laughs> I feel your pain, brother. Man, you and I met when you were starting your freeing energy research journey. Yes. And so I know one of two things I figured would happen today, either you're totally sick of talking about that yeah. journey and you're on to being a VC and, and not thinking, or you're gonna be really pumped to talk about the beginning. Both. So. Both. I have so many things right. I'm absolutely passionate about that it is depressing, uh, despite my endless excitement to not be able to do all the things I'm so in love with doing. So it's a wonderful point in my career to have so many things that I want to put time into. Very cool. So I want to start with, I remember hearing your story of how you got into freeing energy and how you had spent about three decades being like a tech entrepreneur and then you got into energy, but I'm really curious if, if you go all the way back, was there anything, was there any sort of earlier instance in your life when you were thinking about energy or electricity, or was it truly just like you sort of got through this entrepreneurial career and you're like, oh, I wanna think about energy now. Is there anything earlier than that, earlier than the start of freeing energy? Oh yeah, there's that, lots. Uh, when I was really little, I like maybe in middle school or somewhere in high school, I figured out that if, and I wrote down, like I wrote down what I was going to do with my life. And I wrote down that whoever invents a better battery is going to be the richest person in the world. And, and I, I think I was prescient because that probably is true if someone can really crack the battery tech. And so that always, and then I got my undergrad in electrical engineering. And uh, when I was going to NC state, my, my first job during the summer was to work at CPNL, which was the precursor to Duke Energy. And uh, I was hired to do groundwater analysis, to write software for groundwater analysis at their environment, at some of their plants that were leaking chemicals. And I think that was also a uh, prescient and precursor to the advocacy I feel towards the environment that I didn't actually feel at the time, but they put me in a job to do this calculation of groundwater penetration. I was a freshman in college and I was supposed to have all summer and I did it in a week. And um, uh, so then they're like, what are we gonna do with you? And that actually changed my life. They were trying to figure out what to do with me and uh, somehow they hooked me up to do plant inspections. And me and this woman who was a bit older than me um, traveled around the state of North Carolina 
We climbed inside of uh, the nuclear plant before it was fueled. We climbed inside of dams. We climbed up towers and used sensors. And so for like two months, six weeks out of that summer, I went all over the state looking at every kind of power plant the state had looking for just basically doing inspections. And it was absolutely remarkable. And I got to see the entirety of the utility industry, which I think is both simultaneously awe-inspiring and civilization changing, but also, as many people know, it's got its really deep challenges that are becoming increasingly apparent. So uh, that was that was that was probably the first part I, I fell in love with electricity and been in love with it ever since. And then I guess the the last part of the question is when I was uh, I was traveling in East Africa with my family. We were with a Samburu tribe out in the field, three hour drive way in the middle of nowhere and no one's you know they they had no electricity and had no no anything they um dug holes in the ground to go to the bathroom and this young lady was we were in her hut and there was a, a translator and the hut was lit by a fire a, a small fire in the middle of the hut and she was explaining through the translator how she feeds her children and the hut fire was the only source of light and she and her husband slept with all the children in this little hut mud hut and I, and as we're sitting there, my eyes are burning, my throat is burning, there's little fires going up there, and I can't believe, I said, I asked her through the translator, you know, how do you deal with this horrible smell? And she says, well, we uh, all the children are used to it because there's no other way to light it. And you know, the metaphorical light bulb went off over my head, right? And I said, "There's, man, I'm an electrical engineer, there's gotta be a better way to do that. And that's probably the singular thing that sparked my journey into thinking about how to transform lives through local energy. That's amazing. Yeah, that, well, that whole concept is still mind boggling to me after 15 years in this industry is how simple and sort of generally unchanged electricity <laughs> systems are. You know, I was, I was actually teaching my son Ohm's Law the other day. Nice. And I was just thinking about like how that's unchanged. Like it's so simple. Like it's been around for a long time. Like this is not groundbreaking, cutting edge technology to get people electricity at this point. And no. yet there's still people who, who don't have that. So you really have to think about the business model or, or just there's gotta be something else. It's not just some technological innovation. And so I really have always appreciated that in talking with you because you you have that experience of, becoming a tech entrepreneur and really sort of working outside of electricity for, I, I believe I, I read it was about three decades. Is that correct? That you we were don't outside like to count of it the electricity? Decades, were... But uh, yeah, it's been a long time. <laughs> Here's the crazy thing that three if units. you go, I thought about this the other day, Greg, the, if you look at all the energy systems that power civilizations, fossil fuels, electricity, they're all, they all have two characteristics in common that really blew my mind when I thought about it. It's not in the, it's not in the book. First of all, the only way to build those systems is to do massive, massive infrastructure. You know, you need to build hydro dams and transmission lines, and you need to build pipelines for fuel and gas, and you need to build oil rigs that cost 25 billion. And so what ended up happening in the entire history of energy has required large government intervention for, you couldn't have those energy systems without a complex society and government where it could aggregate the capital necessary or create the laws uh, for capital to be aggregated in a protected way, uh, which is why I like utilities or monopolies, at least back in the time. Uh, and so you just had to, the government did an amazing job by 
by allowing society to build these massive energy infrastructures, which by doing so create economies of scale and everyone in the Western world enjoys affordable energy, oil, gas, electricity. It's, it certainly could be cheaper. And I think that anytime you build giant infrastructure projects, whether it's a city or a bridge or a stadium uh, or a military complex or a power plant, and you aggregate large bits of capital to do it, there's a lot of people that get wealthy from that. And what I think happened was that, and this is not some conspiracy theory at all, but the fact is that oil and gas and electric companies are some of the most powerful, wealthy, profitable organizations in the world, and perhaps deservedly so, because they have done something for civilization that's easy to overlook and to take for granted. They more or less now have a system that works relatively well with things like climate change aside. And it's the, this local energy stuff, like that small light that that family ended up getting in Africa it completely breaks that model. You no longer need billion dollar infrastructure. You no longer need enormous government support to carve out the capital allocation. And I think this is, I think this move to small local energy systems is actually far more profound from a history point of view than I'd even realized when I wrote the book. Uh, we're shifting not just the way in which the technology is deployed, but the entire allocation of largest capital projects in human history and the way that the governments have been supportive of energy systems. We, ha we couldn't have energy systems without the government. And uh, I think that's no longer the case. Yeah. It's big changes. That's amazing. It, so you getting into free energy, that sounds like that was kind of like a, a, a hypothesis going into the research. And just to remind me and us, how long did you research for that book? Published? Experience that we don't try to talk about. Let's say that I might told my wife I'd spend <laughs> a year uh, doing it. And let's just say it took three years longer. Uh, but the problem was that I started a startup and I was also having more fun we had given away the bulk of the money I made when I sold IBM, but we had enough for me to do this. And I traveled all over the planet Earth, meeting people, learning about local energy, large-scale energy. I sat down with the founder of Jinko, the largest solar manufacturer in his headquarters in China and Beijing, and just what a blast. And so I, I was dragging my feet, doing the research, and then I don't think the book would have ever been finished had it not been for COVID. And so COVID was a disaster uh -huh. for civilization uh, and for, you know, for countless families. And it was certainly had an impact on my family, but it also meant that I had to quit traveling and I had to quit meeting people. And so I actually sat down mm -hmm. and wrote the darn book uh, and finished it. So wow. there's some, some silver lining in that terrible era of human history. Yeah. 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 So obviously it sounds like you, you still are a believer in the local energy. More and, than ever. And that that is, that is the revolution. That is, Yeah. Is there anything that you, when you kind of went into the book, is there anything that, that you changed your mind on? Like, was there anything that you just held as such yeah. a strong belief going into it, but then got your mind changed on? I think most people go into this industry, wherever they're coming from, whether they're doing big scale energy or carbon capture or small scale energy, whatever it is they're doing. And I think they come in seeing utilities as the foe and... I had met some really enlightened people and they said, hey, you know, this doesn't work unless we work with the utilities. And I dismissed it as people that had maybe once worked at utilities and they had drunk the Kool-Aid. But the more I looked at the <laughs> system from a mechanical and economic engine point of view, the more I realized that the electric utilities for a long list of reasons are an essential part of this energy transition. Now, could they move more quickly? Absolutely. Are some of them dragging their feet? Perhaps. Uh, but generally the legal aspects of how their monopolies are carved out, the infrastructure that they've built like transmission and things like that are 
an essential part of the future of clean energy as we go through this transition. As an example, uh, and probably very specific to your question, Greg, I just assumed that it would be better for everybody to do a local battery, a local solar on their house, and that we would never need a grid. And when you do the math, and the math's on my website, it's in my book, it's actually incredibly obvious that, it, uh, like the computing industry, when you connect to these devices, they're far more valuable than if they are isolated. And there's a lot of reasons for that, capacity and peak and a lot of other things. It's, it's really basic math. So it's the exact same underlying thesis that makes your computer more valuable when it's part of the internet. It's the same thesis that makes your solar battery in your house or your electric vehicle more valuable when it's part of uh, electric grid, or as I call in the book, the energy internet. Yeah, that's sharing. I mean, there's so many examples just in the last decade of like sharing underutilized capacity, right? Like if everybody has their own car or everybody has their own Great point, house yeah. and those can't plug into a network that has some kind of piece of software, some kind of or you know, some kind of optimization model underneath it. It's very challenging to like get the most out of the infrastructure. We all have to own a lawnmower. We all have to own a car. Yes. We all have to own everything individually, and it probably apply. It seems to apply. I really like. There's something in the back of my mind where I really want to go down this path and talk about like internet communities and cloud computing and all of those things because I think there's so many interesting analogies and you're one of the few people I know in the energy business can really move across those uh, all, you know, from the tech side, how do you build a, a globally scalable tech platform, which has a set of underlying principles that every tech VC could just like rattle off and every tech entrepreneur can just rattle off. But in the energy business, if you came up in the monopoly utility, you don't really think that way. You don't think you don't, about yeah. How can I launch it? How can I launch some kind of app, and then I can is grow a what would take 130 years, and another era can now take you know 10 years to I think launch that the, a, a global utility. Uh, yeah. I think the, inter, the the metaphor or the parallels between the computing history and electricity history are shockingly uh, relevant. And when I first started researching, and people made them superficially, then people that knew it better told me that well, no, there's too many differences. It's just a trite analogy or trite uh, parallel. And as I dug deeper into it, I think I can defend and have written it was a decent-sized section of the book on just how much the electricity industry parallels the computing industry when you get down even to the technical details of how you switch packets or do microgrids um, is a point of common references, for example. and But mostly, it's a network effect. And, you know, Bob Metcalf made the great observation that's both drove the internet and drove the electric grid, which is um, this: the value of a network is the geometric sum of their parts. And so Sam Insull and Thomas Edison and George Westinghouse figured that out when they created the first grids. Uh, and it took the computing industry a long time to go there. But the irony is that the current model of the grid is a lot like the old model of the computing, which is you have these large giant pieces. They were called power plants or mainframes. And I know it's even more ironic that I worked at IBM, which gave rise to the computing industry, uh, made it mainstream and accessible. Uh, and they are a bit like the utilities, where if you fast forward, IBM's still around, they're still selling mainframes, they're doing fine. Their businesses didn't go under because of PCs and smartphones. They are still relevant because they do things that no one else can do, but they're no longer the only game in town. And in fact, their relative importance to the greater computing industry is not nearly what it was once upon a time. And I think some utilities will sort of 
kick and scream and remain IBM-like in their resistance to evolution and others, there are already many that are embracing what's coming and they're going to be really successful in the same way that the the companies like um, Digital Equipment and others followed IBM with a different model and embraced it and ended up for a time being really successful. Yeah, and it seems like, you know, just the way that the cost structure of the technology that that we run the internet on, it, that goes down and down and down yeah, and becomes more efficient. And there's zero marginal cost. And what I've always found fascinating, I've been obsessed with this and actually made a couple of attempts at at building companies around this concept. And it's it has been a challenge to actually get the ball rolling, which is how do you let the buyers or the users of the technology participate in the declining cost curve. And I think cloud, cloud computing has done a good job of saying, hey, you know, if I'm Amazon Web Services, I don't have to go to Netflix in the early days and say, Netflix, how would you like to run on this, this you know, data center over here for 25 years, pay me this price and I'll raise your price on an annual basis, 2% so I can get it penciled and I can get it financed. Like they didn't do that. They said, I'm gonna build this infrastructure. The network's gonna grow over time. The technology's gonna go down. The power is gonna go up. The, the, the computing power is gonna go up. And you, the person who subscribes to cloud computing services are going to get the benefit of that, either through better services or just the fact that the technology is going down in price. And I've never really seen despite the fact that we could go there now with solar technology and battery technology as it's coming down in cost, there's still this obsession, it seems, in the industry of, I have a big giant balance sheet, like Google or somebody like that, and I have a big giant solar farm or a wind farm, and if I'm the developer, I just need to get that financed. So I need Google or some large balance sheet to sort of underwrite the financing there. So I'm curious to just know, if, having come from cloud computing, you've seen that has scaled so quickly and it continues to scale quickly. And now we see with renewables that I heard a stat and I don't have enough data on this. I heard it at COP, but it was basically that only two windmills got built in the UK last year. And it's like, if you look at that versus how much cloud infrastructure was deployed last year, it's it's just mind boggling. So I'm just curious, like I'm kind of throwing that out there's there. So for discussion. There. There's really so much there. There's so much there, Greg. There's one reason, one fundamental reason that Netflix and cloud computing grew so much more rapidly than the electricity industry in terms of embracing next generation technologies, which is that electricity industries are monopolies. So there is no equivalent. If you and I wanted to create a Netflix competitor, legally it's quite fine for us to go do so. We may or may not be successful, but Netflix knows is omnipresent risk that Greg and Bill are gonna go out and create a competitor, so they have to lean in, they have to invest, they have to take risks. The electric utility industry has no competition, so they have a different set of guiding principles in how they make their decisions. And even if you have a utility executive that wants to lean into the future, and there are many, they're entirely governed by the public utility commissions, as you know, and those folks tend to be even more conservative on average than utility executives. And so you have this, self-reinforcing system that says, let's not take any risks, let's not do any experiments because they're correct. If we get it wrong, we're gonna have massive blackouts, the consequences of which are terrible. So they stick to a system that's barely changed in 120 years. But what's gonna happen is the change is being forced on them. And you talked about computing versus the electric utilities. The metaphor for me 
the reason that computing has become so inexpensive and so efficient is actually this little thing. Smartphones, I mean. Um, so even more than PCs, the cost, you know, you know, because they make billions and billions and billions and billions of these every year. And that drives the economies of volume up to the point where the price of a compute is dropped a hundred, maybe a billion times over the last 20 years. So for a dollar worth of compute, you can get a billion times more processing out of it. And because unlike every other power system and unlike mainframes, these things can be made in factories and factory lines. And that just changes the fundamental economic value proposition. You know, one of my favorite stats in the book, when people try, really try to get their head around the fact that solar and battery are technologies and wind and power plants are not, uh, so nuclear plants are not, they contain technology, but they're not technologies. So you look at how many, I'll get the numbers roughly correct. In, I have to look at the book to get them exactly. It's been a minute, but you know, nuclear power, it came back from COP, everyone's excited about it again. So there's only about 450 nuclear power plants in the world. And of all the types of power generation that exists, it is the singular one whose costs continue to go up because there's only 450 of them. So you've only had a chance to learn the 500 times to, to, to build it, to see what it, plus the consequences of making a mistake from a nuclear fallout point of view are astronomical. So the risk aversion is off the charts as it should be. So you look at coal, we've got, made about 3000 coal plants and we're, we're getting better at coal plants, but we don't want them anymore. And at this point, when I started writing the book, there were still a lot of people that really thought we needed more coal plants and pretty much, I don't know anyone that will look you in the face and say we need more coal plants, not even people at China. Um, so then natural gas has really caught up. Well, guess what we've made, uh, I think it was uh, close to 10,000 natural gas plants because they can be manufactured centrally. And the other thing that people miss about natural gas plants was the fundamental engine, uh, the turbine technology was also built in aircraft engines. So you already had decades of improved technology, materials, manufacturing factories to drive down the cost of converting a liquid fuel into motion, which turns a generator for a power plant or fan blades for an airplane, but it's similar, not the same. So then you get to, you, you take a giant leap. So what is the next most fastest price drop there is? Well, it's wind. Uh, and we've built about 250,000 wind turbines across the world. So we've had a lot of chance, not 450 power, nuclear power plants, but 250,000 wind turbines. We're getting better. We build one, we improve it. We build another one, we improve it. You can build more of it in a factory, but it still takes a lot of manual work. It still takes a tremendous amount of on-site effort and yada, yada, yada. So 500, 450, 3,000, 10,000, 250,000. We have made, as of 2022, 150 billion solar cells. So the degree to which we've learned about how to make a solar cell has no precedent. And, and the only thing that it costs money in a solar cell that you really can't get, get away from, and even they are getting away from it, is silicon, which is the second or third most com common uh, element on the planet Earth. And all the solar cell technology is being built on 40 years of microchip technology. So we already figured out how to make pure silicon, how to manufacture it, to print on it. So we're building silicon solar cells have even more of a head start than gas turbines did relative to aircraft engines. So we, the learning curve is astronomical. And the battery learning curve is catching up quickly to the uh, solar learning curve. So I'm going to go out on a limb because I don't have the data, but I'm going to guess one of the reasons that the UK only built two wind turbines wasn't that they did no renewables, that they probably, I, I, I would bet that, I'm going to go read this after we're done, I bet you they built a ton of solar because it is just so much cheaper and easier to build solar now. Even in London, where there's not a lot of, England, where there's not a lot of sunlight, there's still plenty. Yeah, yeah, I think my first solar panel I ever 
was a part of plugging into the grid had to be on a two axis tracker just to make it even slightly pencil. And now it's like, you just add more solar panels. It's so cheap. You know, you, you're talking <laughs> you <don't> uh, <laughs> with the first yeah. solar, this first solar panels went up on satellites and they were about $70 uh, a watt. And today uh, you can get a solar cell for like uh, 10, 15 cents a watt um, for the same technology. And, and it's going to continue to go down. So that's a great, that sort of goes hand in hand with this idea of like all of that technology cost curve going down by so much. How in your mind, like we still see price escalators in, in PPA rates and we're still trying to make solar farms and other things like pencil. It almost seems as hard to get one financed today as when I, when I first got into this and we don't really have less tax incentives. In some cases you have more tax incentives. More, yeah. Do you have any insight into like, why, why are we still struggling? Why are we still like nickel and diming the, uh, the every project when with tax incentives, when the tick, when the cost curve has come down so much. What are, what are PPA rates? A power purchase agreement. Great. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah. That's okay. I just want to, mm -hmm. thanks. <laughs> yeah. So when you buy a large solar farm through a PPA or a wind farm, the price of actually generating that electricity, the building the solar farm, building the wind turbine farm, it's less than half of the cost of that project is actually the solar and wind. It's the building or utilizing the transmission to deliver it to its end destination is an enormous part of the cost. And as most of your listeners probably know, that is now the bottleneck for all renewable energy in the world, and particularly for the United States where interconnection queues are now backed up for years and years and years and years. That's one reason. But the real reason that I think it's become so crazy is that everyone and their brother is actually trying to make those solar farms. And so you, you're, everyone's kind of going lower and lower on the price so that if you want to get in the business, you've got to basically get quarters of you know, tens and hundreds of a penny uh, margins because there's 250 other people that are trying to do the same thing. And there's also unbelievable uncertainty because all these projects are because this falls back to the point I made at the beginning of our conversation about the government's involvement, you can't build a large solar or wind plant without having multiple, multiple inter interactions with the government. And again, this isn't, I'm not trying to bash the government. They're trying to keep the grid running. They're trying their best to keep it from overheating and not overheating, but from just not working. So they're being really conservative about adding new projects. And this has created a, a game between interconnection requests and people processing the interconnection and all the ISOs and the um, TROs. And so you've got this bizarre game that the only thing that happens is you don't build any large scale stuff. That's why the price keeps getting cheaper and harder to close them and longer to get them done. And it's amazing to me that more people, they come back from COP and they're like, wow, let's build more nuclear power plants. That's going to work. Like, why the heck don't we just build more small scale solar? You can do it anytime, anywhere. And then California, which was the beacon of small-scale solar, they have completely done a 180, and now it's incredibly difficult and expensive to build small-scale. It's it's uneconomic to build small-scale solar anymore. And I got when I was finishing the book, I got deeply involved in their net metering debate and the law that eventually, or the P PSC um, that finally came out, and it was just premised in my not expert but deeply involved opinion. It was premised on completely false data and. I did listen 
and participated in conversations between people that had 16 PhDs whose IQ was 1,000 on both sides of the topic about if you put too much small-scale energy, you have this problem. Well, if you don't do this, you have this. And the point was that nobody, uh, and that's why policy doesn't get done, because if you have people who are well-intentioned and that smart on both sides of the discussion, passionately, you basically vapor-locked and the utilities got what they wanted, which was to slow the California's rapid embrace of small-scale energy. And it worked. So the small-scale energy business in California is all but stopped, which stinks. Oh my gosh. It almost goes to like, it reminds me in a strange way of like, there are differing points of view, even in, in the tech industry of like, should you build your own hardware Yes, and deploy your own software and have your own ecosystem versus should you depend on someone else's ecosystem? And I think the first principles there is like, well, does that other ecosystem that you're depending on have the same worldview as you? Because if they don't, like your business model and their business model may diverge at some point of scale. Yes. You know? And I think there's so many examples happening right now. That but again, in tech, you can, why, if you make the bet in tech, you, you, you're going to win or lose on your own. You and your investors are going to win or lose independently. But in energy, mm-hmm. you're, the entire game rules are changed regularly and changed by the government. And, the, and again, I'm not trying to bash the government or utilities. They play an absolutely essential role because right now we are all talking on video, our computers and our lights in our houses are working. We're paying a fair amount for electricity. So the system works and they're reticent to mess with it. Um, but in doing so, their risk aversion is in the fact that they have 100 years of laws to support the decision-making process they have today. Uh, they're, just, they're just slow rolling it, terribly slow rolling it. But they, the cool thing is, and here's the best news and why I became optimistic, is that the best analogy, which is in the book, is AT&T owned all long distance. And, you know, used to pay, uh, I remember when I was a kid, it was like a dollar a minute, and that would be like $10 a minute now to talk to someone overseas. My dad would travel to London, it was a dollar, $2 a minute to talk to him. It was like $3 a first minute and a dollar, and you had all this piece of paper writing out how much it's going to cost. And, and AT&T, that was their profit center. They made a fortune on it. And they... There's a famous speech by the CEO of AT&T who was probably, without question, the most powerful business person on the planet Earth because uh, it wasn't like electric utilities were spread across states. He had the entire country. It, the same kind of monopoly protection, that point was enjoyed by utilities today. And he said, listen, if we open this up to competition, it's going to destroy the network. And he explained in a big speech on some Davos of the day uh, why it is that losing control from the top will cause the system to fail and prices will escalate and low-income, marginalized communities and people and families will be hurt the worst because the costs will become un... They won't be able to afford long-distance calls anymore. And it is the exact same argument that the utilities use. And he would have won because the government was behind him. It worked. I mean, the United States had an incredibly competitive uh, communication network that the, the military depended on. It was just amazing. What happened was the price of communications just kept going down and down and down and down and down. It's a little company called MCI... They bypassed the whole damn thing using using point-to-point microwave relays, and they got around all the laws, and eventually they were so compelling that no government person could look at them and say, yeah, we're going to, that is, that's actually better in every single way, and it's way cheaper, so not a single politician could stand up to that fact. And um, the government relented and broke up AT&T's monopoly. And they did it badly, by the way, so whenever that day does come in electric utilities, I hope they learn from the mistakes that were made when AT&T is broken up. But guess what? AT&T is doing fine today. None of us lost our telephone service. None of us were priced out of using our telephones, but it certainly was a lot more rocky than it could have been. In the end, the price de-escalation will create an unstoppable force 
as it's done in communications, as it will do in energy. Yeah. Well, you could sort of covered the whole concept that I want to talk about with, with microgrids and onsite energy. I mean, I think that's really, that movement is a, is a freight train that's not stopping. And there's not really anything. I mean, I saw a stat the other day that was, you know, there's a utility that they have these ratchet clauses in their contracts where if you're a large power user on a public utility, you can only decrease your consumption by like 25% a year or something like that. And, or else you have to pay, you still have to basically pay your power bill. Even if you went completely off grid, Brilliant. still have to pay 75% of your power bill. And it's like, doesn't it just make you feel like, well, as these technologies get cheaper and the transmission line gets more and more expensive, it's like, well, at some point there's a, there's sort of a, a place where we all just say, okay, well, I'll just go build my next infrastructure without you. So you know, Greg, just, you, you, like, you just, touch on yeah. what I think is the, I should have answered your first question, your second question this way. What was the biggest thing I learned that really changed my worldview? And I have, this is the heart of my entire book. And I forget that even people that follow free energy just missed this absolute true fact. You know, someone said there was a great quote once, what do you think is truer than true that you feel passionately about that nobody else understands? And um, I have that, and then the fo it's the following. It is way cheaper to put solar on your roof than it is to put it in a field. And every single solar advocate, including people that support residential and commercial scale solar energy, all agree incorrectly that it is cheaper to build solar in a field at a hundred, you know, a hundred megawatt system than it is to put an eight kilowatt system on your roof. And they, everyone agrees because the way they look at it is to say, well, I can build that system in a field for, you know, one to two cents per kilowatt hour. And if I do it at my house, it's going to be eight cents per kilowatt hour. And so they say, of course, even the residential advocates say, well, of course it's way cheaper to do that, but we should still do it because it's better for communities and people to pay eight cents a kilowatt hour. It is an absolutely false comparison. It, it's embodied by a conversation I had with a utility executive that captures the absolute truth of the statement. And he knew I was interviewing about local energy. And he said, listen, Bill, I, I appreciate that people want to put solar on the roof. I get it. They want to make an environmental impact. But he says, I'm a dollar and cents guy. And so I've seen the math. You've seen the math. It is just much cheaper to build it in a large field at scale than it is to put in a roof. And that's, that's just the bottom line. And I let it hang there for a second. And I said, it's cheaper for you. <laughs> and, and, and no one ever thought about that before. No one says that ever. Yeah. And, and so he's just kind of hanging out there and, and he says, I, you know, he says, I'm not sure that's how it works. And I said, let me put it in the simplest possible terms. I said, if you build a hundred megawatt solar plant outside my town and you're generating that solar electricity at say one fifth, the cost of your coal plant and one tenth of your nuclear plant, and you turn that system on, will my electric bill go down immediately? Well, no, no, it doesn't work though. I said, I know it doesn't. So I don't expect it to go down. I said, if I put an eight kilowatt solar panel on my roof and I turn it on, my electricity bill will go down immediately. And so you tell me which one's cheaper. It's cheaper for me if I build it on my roof. And there's a word for people like me and they're called voters. And they just haven't figured this out yet. <laughs> but the cheapest form of electricity is on your roof, full stop, full stop. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. and it is, I, I should be clear because a lot of your listeners are probably very sophisticated. I do understand that it's a very sophisticated system. Solar only generates electricity during certain times of the day. You need to have a system to balance it. It is a sophisticated system, 
but a lot of people who are smarter than all of us put together have done the math and it absolutely works and it's going to work more and more. Um, and you don't require massive subsidies in the form of NEM in order for it to work, but you just need to also get out of the way. And uh, the government and the pol- policymakers need to get out of the way at the same time. So b- punchline is that small-scale solar on every measurable way is cheaper for consumers, voters, and commercial industries to build their own solar plants than it is to get it off the grid. And they're the only ones that matter. Doesn't matter if the utility is profitable. We, we want the utilities to be profitable because they're, you know, just like we want the, the military and schools and police forces to be able to have enough money to pay to do what they need to do. We need utilities to do the same. We need them to operate. But for consumer benefit, it is way cheaper to put it on your roof and it will be, and it's just going to get cheaper and cheaper. The price of electricity is going to go up from the grid and the price of solar on your roof is going to go down. And there's no one anywhere that doesn't argue that. The only reason it's even unclear today is because the policymakers are playing on the margins. And the price difference, like it was with AT&T and MCI, at some point, the price differences will be so stark that the policymakers can't sort of wrap circles around things uh, and and push a little here and thumb on the scale there. And it's going to become apparent to everybody that local energy is cheaper. And I think that's going to come in the next five or 10 years. Yeah, that's... I always think about living outside of Seattle, Washington and paying my Puget Sound energy bill at, you know, 10, 11, 12 cents a kilowatt hour, ever increasing. Well, all I see on the news is like, oh, well, this is the cheapest electricity in the country. We generate power, renewable, clean power for 0.7 cents a kilowatt hour. It's like, why the hell am I paying 10 cents a kilowatt hour then? (laughs) You know, and the truth is, is because we all know that the gap between where you generate it and where you use it costs money. Yes. The more transmission and substations you need, that's a massive portion of the cost for the grid to work. And we need the grid to work because, hey, maybe your solar panel breaks and you still like to power your house or or you don't have batteries. And so you like to actually run your television and your stove at night. So um, you need the grid and we're going to need it forever. It's always going to be the most economic mix. But like eBay, like the internet, like Wikipedia, the more people contributing small bits through a shared system, the better, more powerful and reliable the system becomes. I'm curious to go touch on that AT&T to MCI situation again. Like what, what happened? So like, is there an analogy there for like what the utility is going to have to do? Because again, if the grid needs to be there and we're going to put solar on our roofs, like the grid really truly needs to become a platform for people to run their own sort of commerce on top of it if this is going to work. How did AT&T evolve once they saw that that MCI or or other I, were those the MVNOs, the mobile virtual network operators? Oh, I think that was way later. There, way later. Way so later. Young. Okay, that was uh, that was when the cell towers came out. Yeah, that was What'd different. You say? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, I, yeah. I think that AT and T's deconstruction was deeply overseen by the government. A fascinating fun fact was AT and T was part of the settlement when they accepted the monopoly breakup and they negotiated with the government. The government said that AT and T could not be in the computer business. That was seminal, and very few people appreciate what a big deal that was. And I think that was one of the, I mean, you would, I'm not sure you would have had the Apples and the Microsofts at AT&T continue to put their massive capital and market power into the computing industry, but they were not allowed to do it, which is, was fascinating. At the time, they were very upset about it because that was the next growth business. And so they were um, precluded from being in that industry. So I think that's, they broke up into the baby bells, you know, uh, and they ended up focusing on the physical infrastructure and long distance communications, the wires into your house, they basically, basically local, they call it um, POTS, 
what are they, POTS is the basic, basic telephony became what they focused on. And they also did things like yellow, yellow pages and they invented the first ever. I saw the guy that led the project. He spoke at one of my firm's events uh, a couple months ago that you could call up and it was the first automated voice systems and you could talk to it and say, you know, I'm trying to find Greg Robinson's email and it would have a voice a data system, a AI system back in the 80s or 90s that would listen to you and give you the answer. So they were trying a lot of innovation, but ultimately, eventually they got into the internet and that's probably, the, and then mobile, that was the saver. Those two things were the saver, but they they futzed around. And, and you know the famous story, everyone knows the famous story that when AT&T post breakup went to McKinsey and said, we think that this mobile thing could be a thing. So we'd really like to understand whether we should get into it or not. So they paid McKinsey tens of millions of dollars, the consulting firm McKinsey. And the report, which is enshrined in business history, uh, said that there may be as much as 900,000 mobile phones needed in the United States. And so AT&T said, okay, this mobile thing's not going to work. And uh, they moved away from it. They lost three or four years before it became apparent that mobile was going to take off. And again, the point, the point that I would love for you to take away from this is that it was not wide open competition like software and Netflix, but it was still somewhat competitive. So if AT&T had just decided not to do mobile and they had the same kind of draconian monopoly laws that AT&T had up through the 90s and the utilities still have, there would be no mobile telephony. There would be absolutely no internet. There's a big difference between complete monopoly control and free for all markets. And I ran into a lot of sort of free market people and I said, listen, if you don't, you have to have government oversight of markets. I, I don't, I wish you didn't have to, I really do. But the stock market doesn't work without the SEC. We take it for granted because it, we can buy and trade stocks and we do it with relative safety. And every year or two, there's some scandal, right? In other places in the world and back in the, you know, 150 years ago when stock markets were getting created, there were scandals five times a day. It was Tuesday. You had people losing their fortunes because the stock market was, so they had a hundred years to get it right. Uh, and it works. And so the government does need to have some oversight, but today, particularly in today's political climate, it's difficult for governments to, to do their job and to actually govern. And they, it, it's more about, um, you know, po politics and governing, which is sad. And I, I hope that fixes itself sometime soon, but you know, fun fact, by the way, on local energy and government, like I put solar panels on my roof here at my house. This conversation is powered by solar and Tesla batteries and my neighborhood had a law or a rule that said I couldn't put solar on my roof. And many, many, many neighborhoods have that all over the country. And so I had to go and get a special permission from my neighborhood. And, and I only could put the solar panels where it was not visible from anyone else's house. So I, I only have solar in a small part of my roof because it can't be visible from the street or to my neighbors. And I had to go through a whole silly process. Back in the day when politics was more about governing, the same thing happened with these little dish satellites on our roof and all these neighborhoods. And those things are actually pretty ugly in my opinion. Uh, and so the federal government passed a law that said they are illegal on all roofs in the United States. And so no city, county, or state, or neighborhood association can outlaw a satellite dish on your roof. So that's why they're so omnipresent, is you can't have a neighborhood association say, I don't want an ugly satellite dish on your roof because it's a federal government law that you can. So you talk about silly things that are preventing local energy from happening. I mean, it's a trivial law. Just make the same law for solar panels right? It doesn't exist. And because solar panels have fallen into this politically divisive part of the government world we live in, um, it probably won't happen anytime soon. So every little neighborhood, every little county has to go through this whole gyration where the government passed a law on satellite dishes, I don't know, 20 years ago, probably wasn't even that divisive, just passed it and bam, solved. 
So that said, the forcing function of cheap solar and battery is going to make this, it's going to fix it. Yeah, I'm hoping. So my wife spends a lot of time on like native plants and regenerative ecosystems, really focusing on biology side, as I think spend most of my days on electricity and energy. And they have a similar problem with lawns. How so? Like a lot of homeowners associations sort of mandate that you have this lawn that's like very kept. Like, oh, interesting. So yeah. people, people have run into issues where they put in like pollinator gardens or native wild areas around their house, like native, like a native meadow in North Carolina would basically just look like really? you did not mow your lawn. <laughs> it would just be like, hey, why is your yard so messy? And so, so maybe they can just put those into one bill, like all together and just say, hey, can we just like stop blocking people from doing things that are good for here's where you and your wife intersect fun fact i my book's full of fun facts so if you wanted to power the entire united states with solar without even sort of next-gen technology it would take ten thousand square miles of solar panels which sounds like an astronomical amount right but this is this math's been done by a ton of people realistically you could do it for a fraction of that but that's like the most generous to do it and people say well there's no way we could do that right there's just way too much land it would destroy the country well the United States, according to, you can just go Google it right now. The United States has about 50,000 square miles of lawns. <laughs> and we've Amazing. got something like, I think it's going to be a million square miles of farm and pasture land. So for less than 1% of the farmland in the United States, you could power the entire country by solar. And here's a fun fact, and no one disputes it. This is one of these things, Greg, that nobody anywhere stops and looks at anywhere. It's like, but the math is absolutely clear if you have a if you own farmland anywhere you can make between 10 and 25 times more money putting solar panels on it and selling it at wholesale electricity than you can farming and farming is a horrible business because again like this is where the government plays certain crops the government plays a very active role in determining the price of crops particularly corn so year to year depending on the political climate and also the actual climate you don't know how much money you're going to make. Whereas you put solar on 10% of your acreage, you know, it's probably going to triple, quadruple your revenue. You can still farm, but at least some portion your anchor portion of your revenue is going to be entirely predictable as a part of a 25 year contract. Um, but nobody, nobody, t- you hear in the news all the time, well, solar's taking out farm. We can't let solar take over our farms. There's, there's another stat in my book is in the world, there's something like 300,000 square miles of abandoned farmland that no one's even sure of the owner's, um, and it's, it's just left fallow and it's, sometimes it grows back. Sometimes it's been farmed too intensively and it's not growing back, but there's so much land. There's a hundred times more land just being useless that you could put solar panels on. And, and people just, they talk about that. Well, in this neighborhood, there was an acre of solar that took over farmland. It's going to be the end of thing. And maybe that is the acre that should have remained farming for a variety of reasons. But the general notion, uh, is that there's so much land to put solar on that anyone argues against it is. Um, looking at a one-acre plot in someone's backyard, they're not looking at the totality of the wor- land available in the world, and it has no good use today, including brownfields where you've got pollution and things where no human's going to walk. Put solar on it, like they do. They got solar on Chernobyl now. It works great. No one wants to walk there, but the solar's cranking away. That's amazing. Well, we covered so many of the other things that I, other questions I was going to ask. So, really, one of my favorite questions to ask is. Um, we covered about your electricity origin story, so it doesn't have to be related to electricity at all, but I'm always fascinated to know if there was something that happened to you when you were a kid, and it go back as far as, as you want, 
some exposure you had, whether it was your parents or some gift or whatever, when you were young that prepared you for what you do today. And that could be just venture capital, entrepreneurship, working with entrepreneurs, communicating really hard problems, anything, just your work today. And I'm always curious to know if there was some kind of unfair exposure or some kind of experience you had as a kid that, that prepared you for your work today. I'm trying to decide whether I'm going to tell you the actual truth or make up something for you that sounds good. <laughs> I don't talk a lot about the, the actual truth, but I'm going to tell it to you because you ask and I, I've you've touched me with a question. So when I was eight years old, my father brought me into uh, the living room and sat me down and, and he said, listen, I've got this terrible disease. I'm going to go have this incredibly crazy surgery. Most people don't survive. This may be the last conversation I have with you. And he survived, but he was slowly becoming paralyzed with the disease that's similar, but more slowly progressing than Lou Gehrig's disease. And so for the next 10 or 15 years of my life, I watched him slowly die. And he lived well. Uh, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't some, I'm not trying to tell you a story of some horrible situation, but knowing that my father could had die going into these surgeries that bought him a few more years, a couple times in his life, but knowing he might not come out of it. Um, changed. We also went from, he was a very successful business executive and we had a lot of money to we had very little money. I mean, I, I, I went to NC State because the university paid for my entire education. My parents didn't have the money. All of our money was on medical bills. And I remain grateful and a huge fan of North Carolina State because they were just so generous at a time that mattered to me in my life. I think what that did, Greg, was I had to, it wasn't just like an event. It was a, it was a journey and I had to accept mortality at an age that was really young. And I had to, it wasn't just a shock that he died and then I realized and I moved on. It was this constant realization that we're mortal. And uh, I watched this man of this incredible intelligence and drive reduced to things that were hobbies for most people because that was all he could do as he became paralyzed. And, and one side story was that was he decided to collect model trains. And as he was, you know, this Titanic business executive, youngest vice president of the history of Beckton Dickinson, became um, paralyzed and he could, so he just collected any read books and he could slowly slip through them. And he wanted to build train layouts then drive the trains around and he couldn't do it. So I was 11 or 12 years old, wiring up and soldering train layouts and doing things that at the time were incredibly unusual for a child that age, because I was his hands. And so all that together gave me a lot of things. It gave me the confidence that I could do things technically way before most kids it gave me the appreciation that doing this technical thing made my father happy. It didn't just make the tra train ran. It actually kept him from yelling at me, to be really honest with you. But but it, he, you know, it gave him great joy when the train layout worked. And I saw not just that it worked mechanically, but I saw that it had an after effect. But mostly, it, it set the pace of how I live my life. And um, I feel like there's this, I found this quote, actually. And I'm going to read it to you. And it's going to be the thing that we wrap up on. It's by George Bernard Shaw. And he said, this is the true joy in life. The being used for a purpose recognized by yourself as a mighty one. The being of a force of nature instead of a feverish, selfish little clod of ailments and grievances complaining that the world will not devote itself to making you happy. I am of the opinion that my life belongs to the whole community. As long as I live, it is my privilege to do for it whatever I can. I want to be thoroughly used up when I die. For the harder I work, the more I live. I rejoice in life for its own sake. Life is no brief candle to me. It is a splendid torch which I have got to held up for a moment and I want to make it burn as brightly as possible before handing it on to future, future generations. And had my father not been sick, I don't think I would feel that as powerfully. It's not just a saying to me, it, I, it speaks to me. 
And that is basically that journey with my father's health, struggle for his life, basically defined how I view my life and that George Bernard wow. Shaw captured it perfectly. I'm so glad you went with the truth. Probably <laughs> way more interesting, but thank you so much for sharing that. That was, that's incredible. We're going to, we're going to close on that. There's no, nothing else to say. Well, thanks so thanks much, for Bill. Me. It was thanks a pleasure. So much, Bill. See you, Bill. Thanks so much. Hey, it's Flo. We would love to hear from you. What questions do you have about the future of electricity and power? What guests do you want us to interview? You can let us know and help us get the word out by commenting, rating, and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can also join the conversation on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle for both is at the WC podcast. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the World Changing Podcast. Be sure to follow us wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, to hear the latest episodes.